This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett and this is the Conspiracy Show. Coming to you courtesy of our Blowtorch flagship station, AM 740, Zuma Radio in Toronto. And a hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliates, Online at zoomeradio.ca and talkzone.com and, of course, via the podcast. Uh, next week on the uh, program, wanted to give you a heads up. The legendary Jim Mars will be on the program. And, of course, he'll also be making his first and possibly last visit to our fair city, Toronto, in a couple of weeks. And uh, we'll be speaking at the Bloor Cinema on the 22nd of June, this is presented by our good friends Patrick and Kadena of Conspiracy Culture. And I'll be emceeing the event. If you haven't purchased tickets yet, please do so before they're all gone. Jim may not be uh, back this way again. So this is not to be missed. And, of course, after the speaking event on the 22nd at the Bloor Cinema, everyone is invited across the street. I believe it's the Popper Pub on Bloor to hoist a few jars with the legendary Jim Mars. <laughs> I didn't mean to, to rhyme there, but it worked out quite nicely. Jars and Mars. Anyway, uh, if, you want, if you haven't ordered tickets, go to conspiracyculture.com and, uh, or you can go to my website, richardserrett.com, and I've got a great big banner ad for the Jim Mars event. Just wait for the, uh, the, the, the banner ads rotate. Wait for it to come up. Click on it. It'll take you, you'll land on a page where all the details are there, how to order tickets. So let's get that done. And of course, you know, Jim Mars, he was the guy that wrote Crossfire, which served in part as the basis for Oliver Stone's JFK. Uh, many, many look at that, uh, that film as, as a documentary. Uh, and of course, he also wrote Rule by Secrecy, which is a great primer for those of you who are interested in in conspiracies and political subterfuge and, and um, the rise of the Fourth Reich, which chronicles America's descent into tyranny. Uh, and it, it's interesting because, I don't know if you've been living under a rock and haven't noticed, the growing list of abuses of power by various government agencies in the United States, uh, from the IRS, 
which has been caught targeting and harassing conservative groups, to the Environmental Protection Agency, which is now employing drones to monitor farms for compliance with environmental regulations. And just I was just reading about the LAPD. The Los Angeles Police Department has added two drones to its arsenal, two Dragonflyer X-6 unmanned aircraft. You'll notice now the LAPD will not use the term drone. It's got, obviously, that's a very politically charged term. They use the, the term unmanned aircraft. And they're essentially small helicopters. They're about three feet wide. They're equipped with cameras, video cameras, infrared night vision capabilities. Now, the LAPD says, well, we're going to be very judicious in how we use them. We don't intend to use this new hardware to keep watch from above on the unsuspecting public. If they're used at all, the LAPD says, the remotely controlled aircraft will be called on for only, quote, narrow and prescribed uses, end quote. Narrow and prescribed uses, whatever that means. And uh, these uses will be made clear to the public, according to the LAPD. Well, if you believe that, uh, I don't know what to tell you <laughs> at this point. Of course, there's, there's also this – it's really a it's, a it's a simmering, seething anger that's taking place across the United States in – well, most recently in Salinas, California, but in dozens of other cities where there are these perceived incidents of police brutality, police forces out of control, police forces shooting reportedly unarmed homeless people, all further evidence of what some are describing as the – militarization of local police forces. And to an outsider, it appears the United States is descending into a police state, an Orwellian nightmare come true. And Police State USA happens to be the name of a new book by Washington Times journalist Cheryl K. Chumley. In it, she explores how radical environmentalism has eroded property rights, We've been talking a lot about Agenda 21 on the program. How the Patriot Act has intruded on personal privacy. The extended reach of American intelligence in the name of security. The militarization, as I say, of local police forces. How the national media misrepresent the policies of security and much more. And that's where we're headed for the next hour. Cheryl K. Chumley, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hey, Richard. Great to be here. Thank good, you. Good to have you aboard. You might find it uh, amusing or ironic uh, to note that this program, this radio program, is uh, uh, broadcasting out of Toronto in a neighborhood called Liberty Village, and the station, <laughs> the station is located on Jeff Jefferson Avenue. So, wow. And it's uh, I, I I found it interesting. You you begin chapter eight with one of my fi favorite uh, Jefferson quotes: "If a nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects what never was and never will be." Uh, do you think most Americans remain ignorant of, of your country's inexorable march towards tyranny, or, or are they starting to wake up? I think most Americans are aware that there's different government encroachments going on uh, at various levels. I don't think that most Americans have the overall big picture of how you know state, local, federal, even international governments play into that. Um, so that's what I, I kind of hope to do in this book, to shed some more light on a growing problem. Well, quite frankly, I find it refreshing that someone who toils in the vineyards of the mainstream media, the Washington Times, uh, you know, would be making, would be chronicling this, because normally these sorts of, you know, 
uh, warning bells and accusations uh, uh, come from sort of a marginalized sector uh, of, of the media, the alternative press, if you will, or, or shows like this. And uh, as I say, it's, it's encouraging uh, that, um, that it's coming from, from your quarters. I mean, how, how is this information being received by your colleagues when you, when you pass them in the, in the hallways or, or uh, you know, gather uh, for coffee? I mean, are they on side or do, or do they look at you and say, well, Cheryl, don't you think you're, you're going a little too far? Well, uh, it, it just came out a few days ago, so there hasn't been much feedback. And I also work from home a great deal of the time, so I don't, I don't rub elbows, elbows uh, on a day-to-day basis with a lot of my colleagues. But you raise an interesting point about the conspiracy aspect. And the thing is, when I was doing a lot of research, 80% of my sources came from mainstream stories. You know, CNN would report on something, and I'd pull that out, and I'd double-check it with other media sources. I don't have to go to these alternative news sources to find most of the stories that are in my book, because they're all chronicled by the mainstream media. It's just the connections aren't being made. Right, right. I I believe it was the Washington Times at the end of 2013 uh, ran kind of a, a summation of the year that was with the headline, 2013, the year that proved your paranoid friends were right. Was that the Times? Am I correct? Do you remember that? I don't remember that, but that sounds like a good headline, and I would say I would have to agree with it. When did this all begin? This, uh, I mean, if we could – was there a, um, a moment in time for you during your research? You said this is where it all began to unfold, or has this just been sort of this imperceptible uh, process of gradualism uh, in this, in this uh, uh, development of, of uh, a police state? Right. I I would say that a lot of this stuff started back in the progressive era, where you had a lot more, uh, you know, feel-good politicians who had good intentions to do the right thing and provide for all Americans, which is totally counter what our Constitution and our founding fathers says the government should do. But it really ratcheted up, and I'm sure this is no surprise to you, after September 11th, when we were attacked by terrorists on our own U.S. soil. And that made any call for security... Uh, kind of a blanket rubber stamp through government programs. Well, let's talk a, a, a bit about the Patriot Act because obviously it, it, it's um, a large part of your book, Police State USA, How Orwell's Nightmare is Becoming Our Reality. Uh, here you have about a, almost a 400-page document, something like nearly 60,000 words, uh, and yet it's, it's ready to go. It whips through the House at breakneck speed and the Senate, um, you know, months after the attack. A document like that must have taken months and months and months uh, uh, to prepare. Um, when, when you look back at, at, at when that passed and, and the, con- the circumstances under which it passed, do you, do you, think it, do you find it odd that, uh, that, it, that it passed the way it did? Many Congress, uh, members of Congress probably didn't even read it or have time to read it. But I don't that- think anybody read it. I, <laughs> you're exactly right. It, it passed at breakneck speed. Congress never works that quickly. Uh, so that should have been the first red flag. But, of course, as you've probably heard yourself, as the years go by and the Patriot Act just keeps getting, uh, you know, bolstered and, and strengthened by Congress and the White House, you even have the main author of the Patriot Act, uh, Senator Sensenbrenner, saying that we've gone too far and he wants portions of it repealed. So that, that's another red flag. But don't you think that that document was prepared well in advance of the, the, the incident that supposedly gave rise to it, and that, that would be the 9-11 terror attack. It, 
does seem strange that a document that large could be created practically overnight and then rubber stamped through Congress. I don't have any uh, factual insights as as far as proving or disproving if it was created well before the September 11th uh, bombing disaster, bombing terrorists attack on our nation, but it does seem odd that it was ready to go that quickly. What what uh, sections uh, of this massive document do you find most disturbing, maybe that are so far-reaching, they're really not necessarily even about pr- protecting us from terrorism? Yeah, a good portion of it, really, and I haven't read the whole thing. I just tried to pull out a couple of different portions of the Patriot Act that people really need to be aware of because it seems egregious. The PRISM aspect of it, where uh, that's the NS, the National Security Agency's name for a computer network uh, that it used to tap into data processors through nine different uh, major internet corporations. Some of those were Google, AOL, Facebook, Skype, and so forth. And they actually, the NSA actually used that program to collect Americans you know, innocent Americans' private uh, search histories, their emails, their file transfers, their live chats. So you don't even have to be suspected of a terrorist uh, attack or plotting something of that nature. Uh, Chances are the NSA has some of your private personal information on some of these nine social media sites packed away and stored away in a data center somewhere. All right, we'll uh, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and continue to delve into... Cheryl K. Chumley's chronicling of America's descent into tyranny. Police State USA, how Orwell's nightmare is becoming our reality. Get on board. Comments, questions. The conspiracy continues right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Cheryl Chumley is a veteran journalist with the Washington Times and also writes about politics and government for various newspapers, Internet news sites, and think tanks. She was a year-long Robert Novak Journalism Fellow in 2008, where she spent a year researching and writing about private property rights. And her new book is Police State USA, How Orwell's Nightmare is Becoming Our Reality. Let me just crib here uh, from the uh, inside of the dust cover. Over the years, we've seen an increase in the abuses of power by our government. The government controls what goes on in our schools, lunches, monitors our private communications on Facebook, and determines the content of our prayers in public places, all in an effort to protect and control the American people. The leaders repeatedly trample our rights as though they were granted by the government itself. That's key, isn't it? The, 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 the um, inability of some people to understand, in my mind, that, that uh, where we get our rights from. And you hear, particularly up here in Canada, this is a particular uh, bug of, bugaboo of mine, Cheryl. Everyone describes what I, what I feel are inalienable rights as a privilege. Oh, it's a privilege to have a driver's license and to be able to operate a, a motor vehicle. No, it's not a privilege. It's an inalienable right. Um, I mean, where is that heading now in the United States in terms of uh, the, uh, the the dividing line between you know privileges and rights? D- does everyone think that all of their rights are privileges? Uh, that is the big, uh, the big deeper battle going on. Uh, if you look at whoever's in office, Republican, Democrat, it really doesn't matter. The, these encroachments by the government are happening on a daily basis in people's own communities, whether they realize it or not. But the deeper issue, as you point out, is that our rights in America, as enshrined in our founding documents, our rights come from God, not government. 
And if you lose that asset, because that's the thing that's the greatest, in my view, about America and about uh, people of free nations everywhere who believe similarly, if you lose that, then that just opens the door for the government to come in, be the provider of all, which if you flip that, they can also be the taker of all also. I wanted to get your take uh, on on uh, Edward Snowden. Do you, do you believe that, that um, his revelations about the abuses of power by the NSA, do you think that that was an act of, of um, uh, heroism, uh, or is he a traitor? Yeah, I've been asked that a lot in the last few days, and I have to tell you, my view of Edward Snowden isn't nailed down yet. I know, you know, traitor versus, uh, you know, patriot, but I, I still have a few questions. First off, I don't see the information that he's released so far as being that damaging to America, mostly because I see most of the information he's released as being more an embarrassment to the White House or things that during the course of my research, I realize anyhow that the government, chances are they're spying on you, maybe not to the same degree that Edward Snowden indicated, but at the same time, I think thinking that the government isn't spying on innocent Americans is a bit naive. But my problem with Edward Snowden is I don't like how he took off from this country. I find that a little bit cowardly. And I'm also concerned that he's over there in Russia under, uh, you know, the ex-KGB agent Putin. And I find it hard to believe that he's not giving some sort of information in trade for being allowed to stay in that nation. So I'll just have to wait and see how, how it plays out a little bit more. Well, he, he says that he was on his way uh, to South or Central America, and it was the U.S. State Department that canceled his, his, uh, his passport, which basically trapped him in, in Russia. Right, and he says that he's, um, he insists he's a patriot, and now he's making claims that he's actually a known spy for the CIA and the NSA. Uh, like, like I said... He doesn't have my full trust, but neither does the federal government. So I don't have a hard and fast opinion on whether he's a traitor yet or a patriot. Right, but I right. do know some of the information he's released is very revealing, and it's bringing it into the public discourse, which is good. How would you characterize the uh, uh, Obama uh, White House, the Obama administration, uh, in terms of uh, openness uh, and uh, efforts to, I mean, he, he came in, obviously, uh, with, with great promise that he was going to, you know, close down Guantanamo Bay. Uh, I don't think he necessarily said that he was going to roll back home, you know, the Patriot Act. But I, I think that that was sort of um, a part of that message, you know, that, that uh, there were going to be a, a restoration of, of civil liberties and so forth. But and to my mind, I mean, with, with, with Obama, not to get overly political here, but we have almost like the uh, combination, uh, the worst co- combination imaginable of uh, Jimmy Carter and Nixon all rolled into one. <laughs> That's probably a good way to characterize it. Uh, yeah, Obama did run on a platform of openness and transparency. He swept away, you know, a lot of liberals and a lot of ideologues in this nation who just, they, they looked at him as the hope and change administration, the one that was going to make everybody accountable for all their actions, bring transparency to government and save the world and so forth. And what's happened is he's been the most clamped down, secretive president in most of the White House press corps recent memory, you know, you even have liberal stations and liberal media outlets complaining that the Obama administration won't release information. And as far as 
as what he's done with the Patriot Act, he's actually come out when the whole Edward Snowden issue started snowballing. Obama took the platform and the national and international stages and promised that he was going to turn back the clock on some of these spy abilities of our intelligent agencies. And in fact, he hasn't done anything. I wanted to talk to you about uh, uh, what you describe as the militarization of local police forces. And uh, I mentioned the LAPD uh, now in possession of uh, two drones, these Dragonfly X-6s. I believe they were a gift from the Seattle Police Department, so it would appear that there are other police forces that now have these drones. How, how, how uh, worried are you about the, um, I, I guess, the, the uh, ever-increasing arsenal uh, at the disposal of local police? Yeah, it's, you know, it's not just drones. It's uh, The police stations around the nation are, are looking with great interest at what our FCC is going to do in terms of ruling on how drones might be used on American soil. There's a lot of police departments that have drones. There are a lot of police departments that are fighting to get drones. Uh, the cons- uh, I, I guess it's still unclear what they can use those drones for on a daily basis. But that's, that in itself is a concern. But when you add in all the gear that the, mili- that the police are getting from military battlefields, we have a Pentagon program that turns around and sells things like Kevlars and, and high-powered rifles and so forth, uh, you know, full-body armor, to local police departments. And police have been scooping up this gear at a fraction of the price in the last few years with dramatic speed. Now, you know, before September 11th, most police departments in America, they just had single, you know, pump-action shotguns, regular civilian-type, you know, weaponry and so forth. Now they're outfitted with Kevlars, full-body armors. They ride around in Humvees, helicopters. Some of them have armored vehicles. You know, can you imagine armored vehicles rolling down the streets of of your local community. I'm sure you could picture that in Toronto. It's just, it, it's turning all the local police departments from the mindset of, of protect and serve into, you know, attack and defend. Uh, and, and what about these, uh, what it would appear to be these growing incidents of uh, police forces uh, or police officers shooting ostensibly unarmed People. Uh, we had the incident, two incidents in Salinas, uh, I think within 10 days, Salinas, California. There have been a number of incidents in Phoenix, uh, Arizona, where I don't know whether the police are feeling more emboldened, uh, you know, to start, uh, you know, firing off their weapons at uh, anyone who crosses their eyes at them. I don't know. What's going on there? Well, you're right, Richard. They are feeling more emboldened. It was just a few days ago that a local SWAT uh, team uh, attacked a home down in Georgia, threw some smoke grenades in. Unfortunately, the smoke grenade ended up in a, in a crib, a baby's crib. Yes. An 18-month-old baby's face was half blown off because the SWAT team was executing a search warrant for drugs. I mean, this has gone above and beyond. When you start having your, your innocent Americans, I don't care if their parents are guilty of drug crimes or not, you know, you, you don't throw grenades in at babies and then just justify it. Well, we're just trying to protect our police officers from what may happen if we storm the home and get fired upon. These incidences are going on at, a, at an alarming rate around the nation. They're not really few and far between anymore. 
And that is a little scary for the average American. Uh, barely a week goes by where I don't see a YouTube video, a civilian recording some sort of uh, police brutality. In fact, just across the lake in Buffalo, um, a, a woman recorded a, um, a suspect being um, basically beaten. And then the police officer went up to her, grabbed her cell phone, stepped on it. Um, and it started this whole debate as to whether you know citizens can – uh, are within their rights to to video uh, police. Uh, people are starting to fight back. People are getting angry about this, and they should. Uh, in, uh, in what founding father mind could could be envisioned a scenario where uh, an innocent American, not arrested for anything, is simply videotaping a police officer, and the police officer swarms with his buddies and goes nuts? It, that's just crazy. Of course you can videotape police officers. And if you're a police officer, if I was a police officer, I wouldn't mind having my actions be recorded because if I was accused of doing something wrong, I could refer to the tape. So it, it just the mindset and the training that's going on in, as far as uh, how our police officers are being taught and trained to deal with innocence innocent Americans as well as suspects, it's getting a little bit out of control. Uh, you know, not to malign, you know, at the old, you have to say it, but 99% of police officers are there for all the right reasons. They want to help people, but it just takes, you know, one psychopath with a taser uh, to just taint everything uh, in, in the wrong way. And it reminds me of, I forget the, the, the comedian who said this, uh, but she was pulled over by a police officer for speeding and he, uh, she rolled down her window and he came up to the uh, a car and ducked his head in, asked for her driver's and uh, driver's license and registration, and said, "Do you know why I'm here?" To which she responded, "You got a C average in high school." Uh, <laughs> so, is I mean, is it just a case of of, uh, of uh, people with not enough education, with too much power, poor training, or is there something more sinister afoot here? Is this coming from the top down? Well. I- Look, there is a security threat in America. It just it just is everywhere in the world. There's, there's big security threats going on right now. And police officers are humans, too. They have families to go home to and children and so forth. And so if you're a police officer and you have an opportunity to make your job safer, you know, a police officer, of course, is going to want that equipment. So on one hand, you can understand the logic. But on the other hand, you can't understand the logic that if you're trying to make the country safer, uh, instead of giving police officers, say, militarized equipment straight off the battlefields of Afghanistan, how about cracking down on the borders first? Because no matter what police do, as long as we have an open border, we have a security issue. We're also hearing tales from, uh, for example, uh, gun store owners uh, where they're being visited by uh, the FBI and told to report on uh, uh, people, law-abiding citizens who go in to order uh, a weapon of some sort. And if they, they're, they're being told, you know, you don't, you don't have to worry about extreme Islamists here. What you need to be on the lookout for are, are people who talk about, uh, you know, things like um, – being a sovereign individual or, or people that are hoarding uh, or storing uh, food and water and maybe people who buy, you know, uh, uh, gold coins and squirrel them away. Uh, building this case that it's the domestic terrorists now that we need to be on the, on, the, on the watch for. And who ends up on this, you know, domestic terror list? It's, it's anyone who is in opposition to, you know, the present regime, it seems. Well, it's definitely the militia groups. 
you know, those, those top the list, no doubt. But then you have uh, people on the list who are simply conservative in nature. Maybe they have traditional conservative beliefs. I believe in the Pentagon or in the Department of Defense, there was some sort of memo that came out that showed that those with conservative uh, Tea Party-type beliefs are somebody to be placed on a watch list, just as, as you were describing. But you, you also have the, the Attorney General under President Obama, Eric Holder, issuing things like Operation Choke Point, where they don't want guns to end up in the hands of innocent Americans, you know, who have Second Amendment freedoms and rights and so forth. So what they do is they go behind the scenes to these local gun shops and banks, and they try and coerce them to not do business. So you have, you know, innocent Americans, they're not allowed to exercise their Second Amendment rights. And then at the same time, you have the federal government cracking down on anybody with conservative traditional values. It just seems a recipe for a constitutional disaster. All right, we'll continue to discuss Police State USA with Cheryl K. Chumley right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Cheryl K. Chumley is with us, the author of Police State USA, How Orwell's Nightmare is Becoming Our Reality. Uh, The whole Clive and Bundy and uh, Bureau of Land Management uh, standoff sort of quieted down, uh, out of sight, out of mind, although uh, I think it it sort of highlighted a little-known fact, and that is how much land is actually under the control of the U.S. government. Now, I've heard varying uh, accounts. Uh, I've heard that the the BLM alone manages about one-eighth of America's land. That's about 250 million acres. Uh, But then when you include the other government agencies like the U.S. Forest Service and national parks and fish and wildlife and so forth, you're looking at about one-third of America is controlled by these, by these government agencies. And uh, I, I just, I mean, where is this all going, uh, Cheryl? What's, what's the end game here? Yeah, and remember, that's just federal because states have various ways of taking and controlling, grabbing lands and so forth also. They, they call it preserving, but it really it's all about controlling and keeping it off limits to any kind of human development. I don't know where it's all going. I know that there's, you know, different theories out there about, you know, the United States working with the United Nations and so forth. Uh, a lot of it is environmental issues where if you corral all these people into smart growth grids uh, where they live and work all in the same community and they all live in little townhomes and so forth, then all that land can be saved for supposedly our future generations to enjoy, but we really don't get to enjoy much of it because the federal government is too busy keeping us out. As you saw with, uh, you know, rifled armed agents, if need be. Are you seeing evidence that, uh, that, that people are being forced out of rural areas and, and herded into these large urban centers. For example, I mean, some, sometimes they, they, they'll use less uh, obvious or overt methods. Uh, they may simply stop managing or maintaining the county road, or they might start closing down you know, those, those public schools or, or hiking property taxes or uh, you know, basically telling people your, water, your well water is no good. I mean, are you seeing evidence that people are being forced off the land? 
Yeah, I spent years covering local government, too, so I saw this stuff firsthand through your local uh, zoning and permitting offices. You know, here we have, uh, you know, most cities and counties have their local levels of government where they have offices of planning and development, zoning departments, and so forth. And all those different agencies carry permits. So if you want to build something on your land, even a shed, you have to go get a permit through the local department. Well, what's happened is because if you look at the the federal EPA working through the states and then the states impose their own environmental issues on the localities, you have all these people owning their properties, you know, they pay their properties taxes on it, but they in effect can't use them because the government has regulated all the uses against it. Or it becomes so burdensome to comply with all the new permitting and zoning issues that they just can't even build on it. So a lot of times people are being regulated out of their homes, or they still own their properties technically, but nothing like how founding fathers envisioned private property rights. They pay taxes, but they're not basically allowed to use them as they want. I um, was getting kind of nervous with the uh, the Bundy uh, situation. I thought that that was going to escalate, and there was going to be uh, a horrible bloodshed uh, there, and, and luckily uh, it, it sort of de-escalated. But I'm sure you know there's going to be there's going to be another uh, uh, Bundy type situation. Um, I mean, do you think there's going to be some sort of is there a black swan event out there waiting to happen that's going to just bring this whole thing to a, a an acute angle, if you will? I don't know if there's going to be a, a massive you know, chaotic situation in America where people are just fed up. But like you, I watched that Clive and Bundy issue with a little bit of trepidation because I just couldn't believe our our BLM, our Bureau of uh, Land Management agents, were standing there armed, pointing weapons, blocking off roads. They tasered that one, the Clive and Bundy's one son so badly, I'm sure you saw the YouTube of it, he had blood all over his the front of his shirt. And if you look at it, what Clive and Bundy did was he basically didn't pay a bill. That's just ridiculous. I know there was a long-running dispute over grazing fees and so forth, but in the end, it's because he didn't pay his bill to the government. So I agree that I, I think that these instances are going to escalate because I think more and more Americans are aware of them and they're willing to take a stand. And I actually think that's good. I don't think we should allow the federal government to take up arms against us for not paying a bill. All right, we'll uh, step away again for a moment, come back and finish up with Cheryl K. Chumley from the Washington Times, the author of Police State USA, How Orwell's Nightmare is Becoming Our Reality. And uh, we'll uh, get to some calls, time permitting as well. If you've got a line, hold on to it. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain and unalienable rights, wrote Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. He confirmed that our rights come from God. Those rights are spelled out in large part in the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the United States Constitution. But recently, the government has been trampling on these rights as though it was the one that granted them. Move over Bill of Rights, hello, George Orwell, and the thought crime scenarios described in his book, 1984. Uh, Thus writes Cheryl K. Chumley in Police State USA, How Orwell's Nightmare is Becoming Our Reality. Uh, What do you perceive as the greatest uh, threat to U.S. national security? Is it some outside force, some uh, radical uh, Islamic terrorist organization? Is it homegrown terrorism? Or is it the United States government, Cheryl? 
that's a tough one. It was pretty easy until you added in the U.S. government. Uh, I would say that radical uh, Islam is is something that is a threat, not just to America, but to most countries in the West. And it's something that nobody wants to deal with because it's too politically uh, incorrect to point fingers at, at this radical segment of society. So because of that, and then you have a complicit government uh, that is afraid to face up to the truth about extremists, Muslim extremists, I think it's, it's twofold. It's probably radical Islam coupled with the fact that the American government doesn't want to take true effort to counter this threat. To what extent, though, do you think that that, that threat, real or imagined or exaggerated, is being seized upon by the U.S. government uh, uh, in order to further their end game, which is basically, you know, more power and and more control. Well, I would hope that there aren't congressmen and congresswomen in Capitol Hill taking advantage of, you know, the threat of terrorism to advance their own political agendas and to keep their jobs safe. I, I would hope that there aren't that many up on Capitol Hill doing that. I tend to think it's more uh, a mindset that nobody wants to come forward and name the real security threat in America, because if you do, you get you get slammed by the, the Muslim activist right groups that, uh, that are here and around the world. We had a couple hearings on Capitol Hill about this very same issue, and the congressman who was behind those, he just took, he just took a beating in the mainstream press from them. Uh, but, but I guess, you know, after writing this book, Police State USA, I'm wondering how you feel about this idea that maybe in this case the the cure uh, is worse than the disease. What do you mean the cure? Well, the the cure being uh, the Homeland Security, uh, the Patriot oh. Act, the uh, the clampdown uh, uh, and further erosion of of civil civil liberties, uh, all in the name of defending us against. This outside threat. I mean, here you have this porous border on your, you know, with with the United States and Mexico. If this threat were real, don't you think, you know, the the uh, Islamic extremists would be seizing upon that weakness? They'd be pouring over the borders with C4. You know, we, we'd have terrorist attacks left, right, and center, and in in malls, on buses, and so forth, like they have in in, in Israel. Uh, they're not they're not taking advantage of that, which leads me to conclude, you know, maybe the threat is not. As 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 big a deal as we're being told. Uh, I see what you're saying. That the outcomes that our government has taken have just—they've targeted innocent American citizens, basically. So they've gone overboard, above and beyond, say, patting down uh, babies at our nation's airport and sifting through World War II veterans' wheelchairs to make sure they're not—they're not carrying some uh, tube of toothpaste that they're not supposed to have on them on, on the airplane. But at the same time, they're letting our borders free. You know, nobody wants to speak about the real threats of our nation, the real threats that caused the terrorist attack on our nation's soil and so forth. So I don't think that, uh, you know, terrorism isn't a threat, but I do think our government is cracking down in all the wrong ways just so they can pat themselves on the back and say that they've done a good job and get the high fives from their constituents, but at the same time they don't have to make any hard and fast choices that could put them in the bullet line of, you know, some of these groups that don't like being named as Muslim terrorists. Would you like to see Homeland, Se- Homeland Security or the Homeland Security Department uh, rolled back, if not uh, dismantled? 
Yeah, the Homeland Security Department, the whole reason for that was supposed to be the one-stop shopping point for data, uh, and and the data was supposed to be used to counter terrorism. But what's happened is, out of the Homeland Security came all these data centers around America. They're called fusion centers. There's like 72 of them now. And instead of rooting out terrorism, they just held capital hearings on this. They found that they're they're not... bringing forth any intel that can be used to fight terrorism. So instead, these data centers are collecting information to combat crimes, which is more another way of saying that our police and our government is becoming militarized against innocent Americans who haven't even been charged with crimes yet. Uh, Not necessarily, you know, a part of your investigation or your book, Police State, but getting back to the uh, the terrorist threat, do you find it somewhat disheartening that on the one hand, uh, we're being told about, you know, we have to be vigilant and on guard against uh, uh, this this threat and those who perpetrated this heinous crime on 9-11. And, and then with the other hand, they're busy funneling arms, perhaps through Libya, uh, to uh, the, these same individuals in places like Syria. The United yeah. States is, is uh, or at least the, the current administration, is, is arming and supporting al-Qaeda. Yeah, I do go into detail in this. The, the just the baffling White House policy under President Obama, you know, to support the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. You know, it, it, the, their whole policy in Egypt was crazy, and it, it's like you say. On one hand, you know, they they want to say that they're watching out for Americans, our security and safety, but on the other hand, they're funding and providing aid and assistance and even equipment to those who seek to destroy us because of our beliefs, uh, just because we are in the West and so forth. So, yeah, it's a crazy policy coming out of the White House. Uh, recently, there was a, a U.S. senator who wrote a letter to uh, um, uh, Bashir al-Assad, in, in president of Syria, and commending him for defending Christians uh, and Jews in that country. And it's, I mean, whatever else you want to say about the Assad regime and, and his father, for the last 40 years, they have kept the peace with Israel, and they have defended Jews and Christians. I, I just read the story about that, too. Um, yeah, Assad's regime, as far as keeping peace over there, it that has been a volatile region anyhow, and I just I don't think America should get involved with, you know, foreign policy where we don't have an, an open and def- well-defined in-game and out-game. We, we don't have any, you know, real mission over there. It just seemed like Obama took it on himself because he was weak on foreign policy. He had to make a strong stance. So he sent, you know, Secretary of State John Kerry over there to give some speeches and so forth. And in the end, we're not doing anything over there. We're not making things better or worse. It just seems like it's weakened America in the eyes of the world. I have a number of American listeners. Uh, this uh, signal reaches well down into the United States, down into the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota. I have a number of U.S. affiliates. Uh, uh, give our, our American listeners an assignment. What do you want them to take away from all this, and what do you want them to do? Well, first, I, I want Americans to 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 really clamp down on the idea in, in, in their minds that our nation, our greatest asset in America, is that our rights come from God, not government. And to read my book and realize, my gosh, we have strayed so far from this. It's not just Edward Snowden in the NSA. It's not just Eric Holder spying on uh, Tea Party uh, you know, Tea Party type groups and so forth, and and sicking the IRS agents on them. It's you know, it, 
it's everywhere and it's in your backyards. And I would like Americans to be a little bit shocked and outraged by what they read and also start taking a little bit of action. Some of the things that Americans can take, you know, it, stop funding, you know, say the big political party groups. If you're a Republican, don't fund the RNC. Look to fund watchdog groups that actually fight for constitutional rights on Capitol Hill that will fight for the little guy, the Clive and Bundys, say, or, you know, the people who don't have their private property rights anymore because of land-grabbing governments. Uh, so that would be one thing I would like Americans to take from it. Uh, as someone, again, who who, uh, who toils in the, the vineyards of mainstream media, what what is the role of? Uh, I mean, there's a. I mean, the mainstream media, the the fourth estate, the fifth estate, whatever you want to call it, they're, they're supposed to be the, you know, the uh, the, the the first line of defense uh, or the last line of defense against uh, these abuses of power. And yet, to me, uh, there it's it's journalism by uh, you know government press release. They're, they're just not showing up for the fight. What, what, what do you have to say to, the, to your colleagues? That's exactly what it is, journalism by press release. You know, it seems like the media nowadays is more often taking the sides of government and being the mouthpiece for what policy they want to push instead of the watchdog for American citizens. It used to be expected when you went into journalism that you would question everything that government said. You would go to your job with a little bit of cynicism and, and even suspicion against those in power. And that's how you would report. That's the mindset you would report from. Now that's flipped. I would say 80% of reporters just taking, you know, the press release and going with it. And it's not entirely all the reporters' fault. You have a lot of editors out there, you know, driven by the publisher and the bottom line, the marketing dollars that say this is what we need to do to stay viable. I understand in in the wake of a, of a horrendous event like 9-11 uh, where there is a bit of a, a rally round the flag mentality, uh, but that rally round the flag mentality has has uh, persisted uh, for the last I don't know, 13, 14 years. And um, I just find the, uh, the, the lack of, of questioning uh, to be very disturbing uh, on the part of the mainstream media. And, and uh, it's really disheartening. And the same thing goes on, on, on here in, in Canada as well, where you just get the impression many journalists aren't, aren't fit to cover a house fire, let alone defend our liberties. Yeah, it's not, it's not just disheartening. I think it's dangerous, because if you don't have the press doing its job, how are Americans going to be informed? I know there's all types of, you know, Internet sites. Americans can go inform themselves, and it is your duty as an American, uh, you know, or a citizen of whatever country you're from. You know, you need to stay informed and aware on what your government is doing, but the press certainly isn't making it easy for people to stay informed, and that's a danger to our freedoms. That's a real danger to the republic. Uh, just got a couple minutes here. I know we're you know you're two years out from the next uh, presidential election, but do you see anyone on the horizon uh, who is really going to embrace uh, you know these values that you that you you believe are so important to, to you know to fight this uh, this horrible trend towards tyranny? Uh, anyone on the landscape that you think is capable of you know reversing the tide? I like Senator Ted Cruz quite a bit. I think he would be an excellent president. I don't think he would be, you know, 100%. I would agree 100% with his policies, but I do think that he would stand strong for the constitutional principles that our nation was founded upon. I think a Senator Rand Paul would do an excellent job. You saw him take a stand, well, both of them on Capitol Hill, you know, against drones and so forth. 
you know, those those are two candidates that I think would make excellent presidents. I don't think they have a chance when you consider that the major funding parties want somebody more like a Marco Rubio or a Mitt Romney, someone more moderate. Or a Jeb Bush. Right. Uh, well, we'll uh, certainly watch that with interest. Listen, Cheryl, uh, congratulations on Police State USA, and I appreciate you spending some time with us. Oh, it's my honor. Thank you, Richard, so much. Thank you. All right, the website, your portal to The Conspiracy Show, richardserrett.com. Hey, we, uh, we've arrived at our 500 subscribers, so I'm going to start pumping out that uh, newsletter uh, next week, I hope. So if you've subscribed, look for it, the, the inaugural uh, newsletter. And uh, if you haven't subscribed, please do so. Log on to richardserrett.com, and then right there in the, uh, the left-hand corner is a... Member content, sign up, log in section, where you can get access to exclusive member content simply by signing up and logging in, as I say. And uh, look forward to that uh, weekly newsletter. I'm looking forward to putting it out. As always, follow the truth. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Thank you for your ears. And wherever you are, my wish for you is that you are safe and dry and warm and well-fed. Well, the uh, 62nd annual Bilderberg meeting uh, has wrapped up in the, uh, at the Marriott Hotel in Copenhagen, Denmark. And the annual gathering of the world's most powerful influential movers and shakers from the world of industry, finance, the royal houses of Europe, science, technology, media moguls, uh, reportedly discussed a number of very sensitive issues behind closed doors, away from any media scrutiny, including, of course, you can imagine what would be on the list, Ukraine, Syria, intelligence gathering, Iran, the Middle East, and uh, perhaps most importantly, how to derail a global political awakening that threatens to hinder the Bilderberg's long-standing agenda to centralize power into one world political federation. So let me see who uh, attended this year's uh, Bilderberg meeting. Let's see. We have a list here from – oh, let's look at the, the Canadian attendees, shall we? This is always quite interesting. Since I are a Canadian, we had uh, Edmund Clark. Group President and CEO of the TD Bank Group. Uh, let's see, we had Brian Ferguson, President and CEO of Sonovas Energy. We had uh, Jason Kenney, the Minister of Employment and Social Development, the federal government. Heather Monroe Bloom, Professor of Medicine and Principal Emeritus at McGill University. 
So you see a number of uh, – they come from all walks, right? Uh, we had the, uh, the governor of the Bank of Canada was there. And I'm seeing who else. Let's see. Oh, of course, uh, Heather Reisman, the chair and CEO of Indigo Bank or in, Indigo Books and Music. Uh, she's a regular attendee. The Bilderbergs. Uh, so what were they talking about? Well, you know, who knows for sure, but I, I guarantee you they weren't playing canasta. Uh, behind closed doors. Well, there's another uh, gathering you might like to know about, and this one isn't uh, secret. It's not sinister, uh, but it is a, a group of very interesting individuals touring across Canada. It started uh, in Halifax earlier this month, or earlier last month, rather, and uh, I think it was May 25th. They began their Modern Knowledge Tour, Canadian Alternative Information Tour, uh, started in Halifax, and they're working their way westward to Vancouver and uh, they're coming to Toronto. Lots of great speakers, great venues. And uh, I believe they're just uh, getting ready to depart from Ottawa. And uh, we had Linda Moulton Howe. We had um, our next guest, in fact, Michael Tellinger, is uh, part of that tour. And he's joining us here tonight. Author, scientist, explorer, has become a, a real-life Indiana Jones making groundbreaking discoveries about ancient vanished civilizations at the southern tip of Africa. He's the author of Ubuntu, Contributionism. And uh, also, I talked to him years ago about this, uh, this book, Slave Species to God. He's also the author of African Temples of the African Gods. His continued efforts and, and, and um, a scientific approach have produced stunning new evidence that will force us to rethink our origins and perhaps even rewrite our history books. Michael Tellinger, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Excellent, Richard. Nice to be talking to you. Uh, so the, uh, the, the lineup that's coming to Toronto as part of the uh, Modern Knowledge Tour, it's, uh, who, uh, who, who's coming here? Uh, good question. <laughs> I've been so thick in the mix of things that I haven't even figured out who's coming up in, in, in the next stop. So I'm going to have to consult Dave here. I know it's myself and Richard Dolan. That's right. And is it, I, 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 is it Linda Moulton Howe? Is, and Linda Moulton Howe. That's yes, right, that's yeah. right. And uh, you're in Ottawa now. And um, uh, what sorts of uh, reaction are you getting uh, to, to your particular uh, content? Well, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm boasting, but, but it's just actually it's overwhelming to the extent that it almost reduces you to tears with the, the response that people are uh, the way people are responding, specifically to the to the message of Ubuntu contributionism, because everyone seems to be so downtrodden and so at the end of their tether and pushed right to the edge with what's going on in pretty much all our lives. Everyone seems to be fighting a battle of some sort. And, uh, and when people are presented with real opportunities, a real solution that they know in their hearts is not just more hot air being blown up their skirt, something that is plausible, that is achievable, and that is very, very exciting for humanity. It, it changes the way you think. It changes your energy. So the response is, is uh, just absolutely overwhelming. Well, let's, let's delve into that a little bit. What, what do you mean by Ubuntu contributionalism? Well, that's really the subject of my new book that you mentioned, and it presents a new alternative to the money-driven capitalistic society that we've all become familiar with and the system, the social structure that has caused so much misery and hardship in our lives and and for not just for hundreds of years but thousands of years uh, taking control of people's lives and 
allowed governments to, to, to pretty much enslave their people. And uh, Ubuntu contributionism presents um, uh, solutions and a new social structure for humanity that um, re removes money from the system and replaces it with cooperation as opposed to uh, competition, where people will work towards the greater benefit of all the people in their community. Where does that leave things like the nation state? I mean, do you do you foresee sort of a, a world federation? Not necessarily. We we believe that people should be left alone to govern themselves. Uh, it is not a simple subject. Obviously, it, the answers are very simple. But to get to the simple answers, one has to go through a process of uh, simple step by step chronological realizations as to why our world is so screwed up, who's in charge, and what happens when you remove those control systems and how things will change. And obviously, the major control system on this planet is money and the, the banking families that control this whole planet and, and uh, everything that goes around. Did you see, is, is capitalism at fault or is it, uh, is it, I mean, cronyism, where, for example, you have certain uh, elite groups that are working in concert with governments, uh, which is really sort of the definition of fascism, where you have this, uh, you know, we hear this term bandied about a lot, which is the private-public partnership, yeah. uh, which is, is, to my mind, uh, that's the root of fascism. But, but it's not capitalism necessarily that, that's the culprit, because, you know, capitalism has done a wonderful job at creating wealth, um, so it's not necessarily the free markets that are, I think, that are to blame for where we are now. It's it's fascism. It's corporate fascism. Well, I, I have to disagree with you there. I believe it's it's everything and anything that's touched by money, uh, and the simple fact that we have this thing called money in our lives and in, in on this planet that causes the problem. The moment you start using money in any form uh, of of uh, um, exchange, it eventually leads to some sort of control, uh, and because of the private money that is uh, that is being imposed on our people. Remember that all our private banks, uh, virtually all the private banks, I don't know which ones are at the moment no longer private, but all the, the, the Rothschilds, Rockefeller-controlled central banks of the world, which includes obviously the, all the banks you can imagine, including the South African Reserve Bank, which I've been up against in my own country. <laughs> so uh, the fact that, the, that these private banks, central banks, are dictating economic and financial policy to their respective governments and are not touchable, are untouchable by the laws of those countries uh, is obviously a problem. And uh, this cannot continue. So, well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that, the, that the, the monetary system that we have is, is definitely messed up, where you have money that's created out of thin air. Yeah. Uh, it's backed by, by nothing. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, I don't know. How, how would you feel about going back to a, to a system where money was backed by something intrinsic like gold? That just causes more problems. It's just, you know, the, the more you evaluate this and you break it down, this is why I had to write a book about it, because, you know, what is happening here, or, you know, already you're showing resistance to the concept of removing money from the system for the reason that we have all been led to believe that money is inextricably connected to the origins of humankind or the evolution of human consciousness and the path that brought us here where we are today. That is not true. Money was maliciously introduced into human society thousands of years ago purely for one reason only, and that's as a tool of control, for no other reason, not to benefit humanity as a tool of control. 
And um, this goes back to the Sumerian times, the Sumerian texts that clearly tell us, you know, when kingdom was lowered to earth from heaven and the first priest kings were appointed to rule over the people, one of the first things they did was invented money as a tool of control. And, uh, and these, the first forms of money are clay tablets that we find in Sumerian clay tablets that are actually tokens of exchange or, or uh, 4,000 and 6,000 year old bills of exchange written in clay tablets. And you realize that these same initial royal banking bloodlines still run the world today. Uh, and every now and then, people wrench that power away from them. You know, like Thomas Jefferson was a great proponent of, um, of, uh, of getting the money away from the private bankers. The whole uh, American Revolution was inextricably connected to the people trying to uh, provide money for the people by the people. But every time that happened the political control and the political muscle by the international bankers um, worked their way into the government and parliament and overthrew those, those uh, people's banks that were actually providing more equity and, and distribution of wealth among the people. So what it tells us is that as long as we have money in our lives, uh, we're going to encounter problems. The moment you remove money from the system, everything changes virtually immediately and you remove the obstacle and the hurdle to progress that prevents people from reaching their goals from doing what they want to do doing what they love to do money always gets in the way michael tellinger is with us the author of ubuntu contributionalism uh, along with slave species to god and african temples of the african gods and michael is part of this modern knowledge tour making its way across uh, canada they started in halifax may 25th they're coming to uh, toronto we'll give you some more details about that uh, i also give you the website for the modern uh, knowledge tour site so that you can uh, get some details for yourself uh we'll um uh, delve further into Ubuntu contributionalism, and then time permitting, uh, Michael, I'd like to dial back to uh, your earlier book, which really deals with the origin, uh, the origins of, of humankind, uh, yeah. and then, you know, why we're here, and, and how we were created, and, uh, you know, what our, you know, who was sort of, uh, our who our over, overlords were, and what... Uh, you know what they had in mind for us. It's a fascinating, a fascinating uh, alternative origin for our species. We'll get to all of that and more, plus your phone calls here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Michael Tellinger is with us, and he is part of the Modern Knowledge Tour. And the Modern Knowledge 2014 Tour rolls into Toronto uh, Thursday, June the fifth. There's a guest dinner. And uh, that's followed by uh, a speaker conference Friday, June the 6th at the Ontario Science Centre. And for more information, www.modernknowledge2014.com, www.modernknowledge2014.com. Uh, speakers include Michael Tellinger, the aforementioned, and of course our good friend uh, UFO historian Richard Dolan, and Linda Moulton Howe, Emmy Award-winning uh, documentary filmmaker and, of course, a regular on uh, Coast to Coast. Uh, incidentally, I'll be hosting Coast to Coast Saturday, June the 7th. All right, uh, Michael, we were talking about um, uh, Ubuntu um, contributionalism, which is this concept, a, a world without money. Uh, paint me a picture. How would the world operate without money? Could we still have commerce? No, we're not going to have commerce. We're going to have uh, no longer have commerce in the sense we know it today, we, everything changes. You know, when you take money out of the system, just 
go through the process, and this is what I always ask people to do, instead of going into shock and going, you know, knee-jerk reaction as to like, because this is what normally happens, you know, when you suggest the world without money to people. The first thing that happens is they go into a little panic mode and shock, like, oh, what do you mean? Uh, well, how like I just work? did. Like I yeah, just did. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> I just calm people down and say, hold on, just start thinking what's going to happen in a world without money where things happen for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons. Instead of chasing money and spending two hours in the traffic every morning and two hours in the traffic every evening, you actually live in a community of your choice and not community by force through socioeconomic circumstances. And you do what you love to do for the community because that is what the community actually rewards you for and embraces you for and respects you for and acknowledges you for. But it's, it's, it's actually a process to get from a money-driven society to a, a society that works without money. You, we can't go there from, in one leap from zero to hero. So it goes through a sequence of, of demonetizing the system and allowing people to experience the, the incredible freedom and abundance that comes with, first of all, working in cooperation, cooperating in our communities, to help and work with each other for the benefit of everyone, rather than competing for the benefit of one at the expense of many, because that's what ultimately what happens with corporates and corporation structures. Um, so a world without money creates abundance on every possible level you can imagine, from the supply of food to technology to arts and culture to ho housing to recreation. The abundance that gets created when you remove money is, is actually very difficult for us to try and imagine in a, the current capitalistic structure that we find ourselves in. Yeah, I mean, uh, what about, what if I don't want to throw my lot in with the group? I mean, I, 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 I got to be honest, I'll lay my cards on the table. I'm a rugged individualist. I believe yeah. in the individual. I, I, the group is a fiction. I mean, you know, you can't hug a forest. You can hug an individual tree. The, yeah. the group to me is a fiction that's been, it's, it's one of those elements of control where they say, well, you know, you as an individual, we have to uh, we have to limit your rights because the the greater good here is the group. But there is no group. There's only a group. Of, there are only individuals. <laughs> well, this is beautiful. What you're asking is one of the frequently asked questions, Richard. And this is what I found over the last ten years. I've I've broken down thousands and thousands of these questions from people that I've faced, and ultimately it comes down to about thirteen questions. 13 most frequently asked questions. Now, that is the best feedback and, and information I can give you. It means we've got to solve 13 problems and we can live in utopia. And that's a word that, you know, is used with great reservation by people. They say, oh, yeah, that's just a utopian idea, suggesting that people should always suffer and people should live in misery and utopia is something we'll never achieve. Well, I don't believe that, and I believe millions of people don't believe that either. And what you suggested is like, you know, the, the group thing that you, what you're suggesting is, once again, it's based on a response, as, which is a fear-driven response. You assume that by creating a community that cooperates and works together, you're removing the individualism. In fact, that is not the case at all. You're doing exactly the opposite when you remove the money from the system. You're allowing people the ultimate freedom to be as individual as they could possibly imagine to be, more individual than you could have ever imagined in your life. However, the, the, what we do as individuals contributes towards the benefit of everybody else. It's not a one-to-one -one exchange. It's a one-to-many exchange that we start to engage in. 
so that whether you're a rocket scientist, uh, a, you know, a, a farmer or a shoemaker or some, anything else you can imagine, uh, you are contributing towards the benefit of everyone, not just towards one or two other people. Uh, it is, this is why I had to write a book about this, to take you on a journey to unravel the poison and the damaged minds uh, that we have from capitalism and thousands of years of being poisoned by the, the money and capitalistic system and replacing it with thinking completely freely about what we would do and how our society would function if you remove money from the system. It's a beautiful journey. It is one of the most exciting things that will happen to you. What I can tell you as well is this, and what I, this is what I normally use in my presentations, to, to explain to people is that only out of um, unity can you get infinite diversity. So your fear of being all clones and all doing the same thing and looking the same or re, you know, reduced to doing the same, behaving the same way, that is, that is just a fear a knee-jerk reaction because out of unity unity allows you infinite diversity and you can look at your body your own human body is a perfect example every organ in your body works together with the other organs in your body the cells in your body work individually there are trillions of cells in your body that are individual cells that do perform specific functions that are very unique and yet they all work together united in harmony for the benefit of your body and this is how you can start looking at your immediate family, your extended family, your community. People being very much individuals and yet working together for the greatest benefit for their own good and which also benefits the whole community. I guess part of that fear for me um, uh, uh, stems from you know, I'm, what I'm hearing I guess are echoes of, of uh, let's say Karl Marx, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And that scares me. Yeah, this is not, this is not what it is at all. It's got absolutely nothing to do with Marxism, communism, fascism. No other system in world history has ever done this because every other system is always, unfortunately, being controlled by money. And this is where everything changes. Everything changes. Think about the consequences of removing money from the system. All your listeners will know one of the first things that's going to happen is the energy will change. Energy, the supply of electricity and petroleum will change instantly because now no longer will designers and inventors and scientists that have created alternative electricity and energy supplies will be limited. No longer will they be threatened, murdered, and tortured, and their inventions hidden from sight. Suddenly, the inventions that are free energy devices and alternative energy will come sprouting like green grass on a, on a spring day. And uh, thousands of devices will suddenly be made available. So... And from that moment on, the way that our society operates with free energy devices changes in the blink of an eye. And everything about our existence is based on energy and changes from that. So the way we work, where we live, how we travel, where we live, how we live, what industry we start, what mining we do, all that stuff changes immediately, starting with that one simple concept of changing the way we use energy and what energy supply we utilize. It goes to the suppression of alternative medication and healing, which is suppressed because of money and greed by pharmaceutical companies. So they keep milking the human population for money. The moment you remove money from the system, the suppression of alternative healing and the cure for all disease that has been hidden for humanity for more than 100 years now, that also disappears. And suddenly new alternative healing modalities come out. And people really start seeing the benefits 
of removing money from the system very, very quickly. Well, the free energy uh, uh, thing is, is fascinating, and I know that you're, you're, you're touring with, uh, with Richard Dolan, who's been on the program many times, and, 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 and Richard d- describes uh, this group of elites which constitute a separate civilization because of the technology that they have. I mean, these, these groups, these individuals, rather, ha- have more money than God. So to me, I mean, it, for them, it's not even about the money anymore. No. It's about wanting to keep this technology for themselves. They could be living off-world for all we know. I mean, yes. so, yes. Uh, I mean, if, because for them, it's, not, it's no longer about money. No, and that's, Richard, that's exactly what it is. And, and this takes a while to actually sink in for many people. It's not about the money. There is no money. The banking families make money out of thin air. You know, people get this into your heads. There is no money. There's only control. It's about the control. And the money is the tool that has been introduced to humanity as the tool of control for these elite families to keep every one of us enslaved. And, uh, and obviously, this goes back a long, long time. This is not something that happened in the last few centuries. This goes back thousands and actually hundreds of thousands of years. Well, that's, I guess, where we should head next, and, and that is the origin of the human family, the origin of, of um, human, the human species. And um, yeah. uh, I guess to a certain extent, you, uh, you were a, um, how should I say, um, a subscriber uh, of Zechariah Sitchin and, and the, the, uh, the, the, the belief that the Anunnaki, this alien civilization, uh, really sort of kick-started human civilization, correct? That's right. Um, and uh, what was interesting is that, uh, you know, it's not only Zechariah Sitchin's um, translations, but there are other translations uh, that are not necessarily Sitchin's translations that have... Um, and I'm talking about the Sumerian texts here now, that have got some profound knowledge and information that can be connected to uh, the origins of humankind, the very murky and mysterious ancient times uh, that um, just don't make any sense today. And, um, and most importantly, uh, what, what happened next was that um, I discovered the physical evidence of what Zachariah Sitchin was writing about and explained uh, and uh, you know, expanding on in great detail in his books, I, I, f- I found the physical evidence in southern Africa of this vast, vanished gold mining civilization that I write about in Adam's Calendar and Temples of the African Gods. Well, we're going to head into a break here in, momentarily, but let's just begin this conversation. First, just uh, for those not familiar with, with uh, the Sumerian creation legend, if you will, uh, and the role of this alien civilization called the Anunnaki. Just give us a very brief timeline of, of what, what these cuneiform, these Sumerian cuneiforms supposedly said. Well, uh, Sitchin um, claims that um, the translations that he's made, that these Anunnaki uh, gods, and you, know, you can read this on various websites and various uh, translations that have been made. Go and do your own research so you can get a broader perspective of this. But they talk about the Anuna gods, or the Anunnaki, the gods of heaven and earth, these beings that came from another planet, came to earth uh, many hundreds of thousands of years ago, uh, somewhere between 400 and 500,000 years ago, and they came here, and it seems that they were either looking for gold or they found gold, and they became obsessed with gold. And um, this is where human gold obsession comes from, comes from the Anuna gods. 
and um, and they they started mining the gold uh, in in large quantities and uh, then needed help to mine more gold. And it's at that point that they decided to clone a new species as a slave species, and therefore the title of my book, Slave Species of God, or Slave Species of the Gods. And uh, they cloned a species which eventually becomes the human race. Um, and this is our, our murky origins and our arrival on this planet. Um, the fact that our DNA has been messed with and more and more geneticists that are, that are experts in this field have come out and, and stated openly that our DNA doesn't make any sense, that large parts of our DNA is of an alien origin and, and that there's actually evidence that our DNA has been spliced and manipulated. And, and uh, one of those people, if you want to go check out his work, is William Brown. He's probably the most brightest shining light in molecular biology and genetics right now. And uh, so the evidence is there that our DNA is, is very peculiar and very strange and that we truly are a cloned species. So uh, the, the Anunnaki arrived here uh, and they found some sort of archaic uh, human genus, I guess, whether it was Homo habilis or Homo erectus, Homo erectus or whatever, and, and yeah. decided to conduct some gene genetic splicing uh, in order to improve what they found and and um, and have this and created this new race yeah. homo sapien that's right uh, that's uh, that's what it seems to be and this is why we suddenly make our appearance with no missing link to be found anywhere uh, and obviously that's a huge problem you know for this for those that believe in in, in evolution from from apes and 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 so forth uh, the missing link problem is a huge problem, obviously, in, in, in that argument. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. Michael Tellinger is with us, the author of Ubuntu Con Contributionism and also Slave Species to God. He's part of the Modern Knowledge Tour, which is coming to Toronto June 5th and 6th at the Ontario Science Centre. More information and details, modernknowledge2014.com. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Michael Tellinger is with us, and uh, he is part of the Modern Knowledge Tour that rolls into Toronto uh, this Thursday, Friday, June 5th and 6th, and uh, they'll be uh, speaking at uh, the Ontario Science Centre. Michael, along with Richard Dolan and uh, Linda Moulton Howe. Uh, Modern Knowledge Tour. Uh, let me get you the website here again. And uh, Modern Knowledge 2014. Dot com for more information. Uh, Michael, we were talking about the, um, the Anunnaki conducting this genetic uh, experiment, really, to create, uh, to create humankind. Uh, if you could, I mean, is there, are there hints of that contained in the book of Genesis, for example? Well, of course there are. The, you know, first of all, what, <clears throat> what we need to point out to people is the opening statement of the Bible is, is not correct according to the original Hebrew texts because the all Hebrew texts, uh, sacred texts, must begin with the letter Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet. That's how it's structured. It's all a mathematical um, process and everything is very, very accurate. So all sacred beginning sacred texts start with the first letter of the alphabet, Aleph. The f opening phrase of the Bible does not start with Aleph. Uh, and when you replace or when you put Aleph in there, this is a discovery made by Michal Ledwitz, actually, who was a, an advisor to the, to the Pope um, for about 17 years at the Vatican and a scholar of the highest order, theologian, and, and his knowledge is absolutely un, unbelievable. 
a walking encyclopedia in the field of theology and ancient human history and, and the Bible specifically. And uh, when he inserted the, the first uh, letter of the alphabet, um, suddenly the opening phrase of the Bible no longer says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but it says, the father of the beginnings created the Elohim, the heavens and the earth. And that changes everything, because it brings the opening statement of the Bible into sync with pretty much all other ancient civilizations and their creation stories and creation myths, and uh, gives pay to or more more uh, understanding to this thing called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or God said, let there be light. So we're dealing with sound and light as the primary sources of everything in creation. It's a spectacular introduction to quantum physics, the first three phrases of the Bible. And, um, and, uh, and then it continues to obviously talk about the Elohim. So we suddenly realize that the Elohim is not the God or the Creator in the Bible, but the God, that the Elohim is firstly a plural for the gods or, or some other beings, group of beings, and uh, and often I believe, and many people seem to believe the same thing, is that the biblical Elohim are actually the Anunnaki. There is a lot of deception going here. We we for the sake of keeping the discussion short and to the point, this is a huge debate. Um, the issue of the Anunnaki in human history, on the history of our planet, in our solar system, in our galaxy, and also in the entire universe as we know it. The issue and the influence of the Anunnaki is beyond our current level of understanding. And, um, and the Bible is full of it. Obviously, we also read about the sons of the gods who came down to earth and saw the daughters of man and took them as wives and had children with them. And we read about the giants, the Nephilim and the, the Gibberim and the Zamzumim and the Emim, all these titanic races that used to exist in the ancient times. And the men of renown, yes. Exactly. The Greek so, pantheon of gods. Yeah, so, you know, Richard, the, the, the thing is that the, this, the history of this planet is a very exciting whirlpool of activities that we are, we are little infants of ze- virtually zero knowledge of what really happened. We're clutching at straws and picking up teeny weeny bits of information, trying to make sense of it. And we catch a strand, and suddenly it, it lights up a, a whole area of information because we've managed to put a few pieces of the puzzle together. We can start making out a piece of a face or a piece of a body you know, in your puzzle. And we get excited about that, not realizing that it's only a tiny fragment of what was really going on. So uh, in this in this new this narrative uh, that you're offering up, uh, I mean, ab- above and beyond the Anunnaki, is there room for an all supreme God, a Creator who created the Anunnaki before He created, uh, before the Anunnaki uh, created us? I mean, is is of course, of there, course, okay, is. yeah, and and this is really where spirituality comes in, as opposed to modern popular religion. And when you start studying this stuff, it becomes very obvious that there is a, some sort of a primordial field of consciousness, the unity consciousness field, the the universal or the the primordial resonance and, and the, the the morphogenetic field that comes out of this primordial source of consciousness, which could be called God, the creator, the creative force of all things that imbues everything with a consciousness and the intelligence that comes out of that consciousness. So absolutely, everything in creation comes from the same source, including the Anunnaki and including us, including everything else that's ever existed. And that exists now in all dimensions, not just the dimensions that we can perceive, but in many other dimensions. And this is what makes things 
even more exciting and where gold in human history starts to play a very, very important role because of the multiple dimensions that gold can exist in. Well, I've always considered myself to be a bit of a gold bug, and I guess maybe now I know why. <laughs> All right, welcome back. Michael Tellinger is with us, part of the Modern Knowledge Tour. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Welcome back. Michael Tellinger stays with us, author, scientist, explorer, kind of a real-life Indiana Jones, and he's part of the Modern Knowledge Tour, making its way into Toronto uh, later this week, Thursday, Friday, June 5th and 6th, and uh, the author of Ubuntu Contributionalism and also Slave Species to God and African Temples of the uh, African Gods. Uh, let's get back to the uh, the Anunnaki. And, and how are we, because you are, it's interesting, you're traveling with uh, Richard Dolan, both of you speaking. I'm sure you've spent some time, uh, you know, talking about uh, comparing uh, myths and so forth, uh, shop talk, if you will. Um, yeah. how, does the, how does the modern... Uh, UFO phenomenon, as we understand it, including the alien abduction phenomenon and and uh, uh, the UFO you know disclosure movement, the truth embargo. How does that all fit into your alternative origin of of of, of the human species in connection to the Anunnaki? I know it's a big question, but yeah, well, the simple answer to that is it, it fits perfectly because you know the this this Earth, this planet has been visited by people from other planets for millions of years, not just thousands of years, but millions of years, possibly billions of years, because we've got to remember, you know, every time we find a, 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 you know, a very distant past activity, we realize that it actually gets a lot bigger. So this is why I said uh, earlier that the effect and the influence of the Anunnaki on our planet and our solar system and our galaxy and even on the whole universe as we know it is much larger than most of us could imagine to the point that we start actually got to start thinking about Anunnaki most likely as multidimensional beings with a complete and utter um, grasp of the laws of nature that can manipulate nature, that can transmutate and dematerialize and, and move into other dimensions and so forth. And, and this becomes a very interesting prospect about their obsession with the physical form and their obsession with gold and how gold was, uh, was utilized by them. But the... To come back to your question and, and Richard Dolan's research into UFO phenomenon and the mysteries of, of visitations and disclosure and all that, I mean, th that's the biggest question in, in human history that connects, uh, that, that also actually deals with the origins of humankind because once you start telling people that humans are actually clones for an advanced race of uh, you know, beings from outer space, uh, that, that obviously blows the whole you know, alien visitation and, and disclosure wide open. Well, how much, uh, how much uh, uh, am I Anunnaki, and how much am I human? Well, um, that's a difficult question to to answer. But the fact that we only use three percent of our DNA, um, or possibly less, and that is now changing because there's overwhelming evidence that our DNA has been activated, and and it's probably got everything to do with the, the crossing of the galactic equator during the 2012 uh, event the prophecy where our solar system moved through the galactic equator and um, all those uh, all, all those energies in, in, in the equator started to activate our so-called junk DNA the the 97 percent of apparently useless DNA well I believe that that is really the DNA that is the the, the, the good stuff that that has got all the amazing abilities encoded in it uh, that we are waking up into becoming more 
conscious, becoming more telepathic, becoming more connected to the universal field of consciousness and so forth. So uh, I think um, that there is a lot of Anunnaki blood and DNA in our, in our body and in our system. Uh, how much exactly, I can't tell you, but based on the, the reports of several um, and, and uh, ongoing reports from geneticists that are studying this and molecular biologists that tell us large parts of our DNA are of an alien, of an alien origin, not of this earth. If the uh, I'm trying to remember the, uh, the, the sort of the Sumerian uh, creation myth and, and and the role of these primitive humans in mining this gold and if if I'm not mistaken it had to do with the the atmosphere on the Anunnaki's home planet consisted uh, of gold uh, yeah. which is and their planet was dying which, that's why they needed the gold so once they got what they needed um, why don't why don't they just leave the, leave us the hell alone and go back to their home planet. Yeah, this is really where I think some of the translations uh, were probably misinterpreted. And this is where Sitchin got some of the interpretations wrong. Uh, but he gave us the best uh, he could. Um, and I'm no longer a believer that the, the gold was used, as Sitchin says. And, you know, he says it was ground to the finest powder and suspended in the, in the heavens around their planet to pr- protect the planet against cosmic rays and, and deadly rays that were destroying the planet. I think that's where the deception and, and possibly the translation uh, misinterpretation happens. Um, I'm now more of the, the opinion that it was a, a very conscious thing that the Anunnaki were doing with the gold and not crushing it into fine powder or nanoparticles of gold, which is also quite an interesting possibility. Because, uh, incidentally, when you, you, know, when you, when you um, mix nano gold, nanoparticles of gold with synthetic DNA, you create pretty much a cybergenetic organism uh, that, that is virtually conscious and you can program it to do certain things and it takes on a crystalline structure and it is indestructible. Um, it, it, it's just incredible, uh, incredible stuff that our current scientists have been doing that very few people are aware of. Uh, that, that you can actually create synthetic DNA and mix it with gold, nano-gold, and you create this instru- indestructible material that every time you tear it or break it, it just re-fixes re- itself, <laughs> like the Terminator kind of thing. But uh, I'm, I'm digressing. So that's possible that that could have been done, but uh, the, the, the gold issue is far more complex than, than nanoparticles of gold as we know it, or gold bars, the yellow sort of heavy, shiny gold as we know it. And it all goes back to a much more uh, uh, mysterious form of gold, and that's the, na- the, the monoatomic form of gold, or the white powder of gold, as you know, and the, the manna from heaven and, the, and, and so forth, which uh, seems to have been the obsession of the Anunnaki and the gods, the ancient gods, the Anunnaki, and, and possibly other beings as well that were visiting at the same time and possibly trying to wrestle the gold from the Anunnaki. Who knows? There are all these wars between various gods and and that could have been a, a power struggle for the gold on this planet between various ET groups and, and visitors. But the, the monoatomic form of gold has, has got some very interesting properties. First of all, it, uh, it defies gravity. Uh, it's, it's, it's not metallic at all, like we think of gold. Uh, it's a very fluffy kind of powder, and, and it, will, it will react and it will bind with, with other uh, substances like uh, um, chloride like sodium chloride you can get all right um, um, 
and uh, and so forth. So it creates it create crystalline substances that is completely devoid of any metallic properties, and it uh, defies gravity as well. And it seems to suggest, and this is from the the, the research and, and the lengthy discussions I've had with uh, David Hudson, who's done ex- incredible research and, and experiments with the MIT guys um, in the USA on the nano gold, but none of this material has been printed because, uh, unfortunately, MIT and these scientific institutions cannot print this kind of information for all kinds of reasons that they throw in your face. Um, what the, the, the interesting research that I found is the following, that between 700 and 800 degrees Celsius, the <clears throat> white powder of gold starts to disappear from sight. Hmm. And by 800 degrees... It is gone. It's vanished. And this is what I referred to earlier about gold being able to exist in different dimensions. So what has happened here is that the nano form of gold, sorry, the monatomic form of gold, the white powder of gold, vanishes from this dimension and moves into another dimension by exposing it to temperature, which is just high energy, high frequency, high vibration. And it, at this high vibration, it moves into a different dimension, out of sight. Uh, when David Hudson describes that they actually... Just, uh, took a little brush in the in the uh, sealed inert tube that they had this this nano uh, this uh, monoatomic gold in, and they actually brushed the little pan uh, just because they thought maybe we just can't see the the white powder, the pile of you know white powder. Maybe it's there, but it's just invisible. So they brushed the pan to just try and disperse it, but that didn't help. When they reversed the the process and they dropped the temperature the gold started to reappear until it all came back perfectly where it was before it disappeared. Remarkable. So, that sounds like the uh, sort of the origin of the legends of alchemy. Exactly. This is, and this is, you know, when, when I tell people in my workshops and my presentations that, uh, that the mystery schools start with these first priest kings that we learn about in the Sumerian texts, in the, in the kings list of the Sumerian tablets, and they're not just one, they're several kings lists, and fascinating, and several of them actually tell us exactly the same stories, tell us exactly about the same number of ancient kings that ruled the world eight kings that they actually mentioned by name, where they ruled, and the fact that they ruled for more than 220,000 years. Two separate clay tablets called the King's List giving us exactly the same information. Uh, and that sort of excludes the probability factor that these guys were making it up. We're just, ab- just about out of time, Michael, but yeah. I, I, I just want to um, ask you about the um, where this is all sort of heading. Like, if... We were created as a slave race. Uh, are we still living on some sort of a prison planet where the Anunnaki, at some level, are still in control? Well, many people will say yes to that, and I'm, I tend to be to 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 think that that there's a lot of truth in that because the draconian control and brutal uh, abuse of the of humanity, of the people on this earth, of living, breathing human beings, the corporatization, the inhumane treatment of human of people is so far removed from human nature human nature which is loving caring sharing uh creating and not destroying it seems to be of an alien origin that has been imposed on humanity and the same gods the anunnaki that we find the vengeful gods in the old testament are still here controlling this planet and are still obsessed with gold because the gold seems to be disappearing off this planet. As you and your listeners will know, there's not much gold on this planet. Everyone's looking for their gold and they can't find it. 
Um, so they're probably still removing the gold off this planet. This is a big subject, obviously. And, and now we find ourselves at the crossroads, and this is why the book Ubuntu Contributionism, a blueprint for human prosperity, plays such an important role in people's lives right now, and why they get so excited about this, because it truly presents real plausible solutions how to help humanity to remove ourselves and free ourselves from this corporate draconian control that has been imposed on humanity by the banking royal bloodlines that have been controlling humanity for thousands of years through money as the tool of enslavement. Well, uh, people will be able to, uh, to find out more about this when you roll into Toronto later this week, Thursday and uh, Friday, June 5th and 6th. The Toronto Modern Knowledge 2014 Tour venue will be the Ontario Science Centre. And uh, more information can be found at modernknowledge2014.com. Uh, really appreciate your time uh, tonight, Michael. Richard, thank you. It's been great talking to you, and, and thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. Thank you. Michael okay. Tellinger. All right. Uh, listen, back uh, next week with another program, the great legendary Jim Mars will be in the house. Uh, my thanks to uh, Damien doing yeoman's duty, sitting in for my regular producer, Tim Spreen. Not sure where Tim is, taking a well-deserved sabbatical. I mean, you, uh, you sit in on this program uh, week after week after week, and the information that's imparted does a number on you. I mean... I tell you, I've gone through four or five producers since I've, I've started this program here uh, at Zoomer Radio. Uh, so, anyway, Damien, appreciate it. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing hidden, nothing revealed that won't be concealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.